season five, episode two. We made it. And you know what is sad? I was thinking, I was like, maybe there's like a really cool catchphrase we could use for season five that would include the word five. Mm. And I was thinking of like Faith from Buffy, five by five. Mm -hmm. No, that doesn't work though. I've got five on it. We're not betting. Mm. High five. Number five is alive from Short Circuit. (laughs) They just don't, nothing is inspiring me. None of it really lands quite the way we're looking for. We're looking we're looking for a five saying that really, you know, comes out of the gate hard. A five alarm fire. <gasps> now there, now you're talking. Now I'm talking. We like it hot. But also we're we seem to be slightly cursed <laughs> for the last couple of weeks. So maybe it's, a five alarm fire is sure. asking for trouble. Sure. Maybe a point five alarm fire would be better. Like a small kitchen fire that got gets immediately burnt. You just turned off the burner and then it was like gone. We lit a match and a candle. <laughs> I had my broken arm. I have COVID, you guys. The Rona, it got me. Again, because if for those of you who were with me, with us in March of 2020, yeah. when Kate Claiborne pinch hit for me and guest hosted on a sickbed yeah. scene interstitial, which we will link in show notes because it's a delight to me that I'm interstitial, we now know that Sarah had COVID then. Yeah. But here I am, round two. It's different this time, right? It's different this time because I have better living through science, (laughs) meaning uh, I'm on Paxlovid, which is the antiviral from the Pfizer Corporation. And, you know, while my feelings about big pharma are complex, today... I'm Today a fan. you're a fan. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, because you bounced, it seems right back. Listen, I bounced so, I was very sick. Chicago got me. I was very sick on Monday. I started Paxlovid. It is now Thursday. And like, I've been up and about all day. I, I wrote this morning. Amazing. You know. Yeah. I feel great. So, big fan. Oh, my better living through science is that I got the new booster this week. See immunity, immunity for both of us. Little different methods, but you know, we like it. Mm. It did feel like someone punched me in the arm, which is mostly a problem because they gave it to me in the same arm that is broken and in a cast. Although I think really that was the best thing to do. I'm already sort of compromised in that arm. Why not just make it from shoulder to tips of the fingers, right? Just full on. The whole nine, as they say. We'll save that for season nine. The whole nine. There you go. Perfect. Now that's locked in. Now we're thinking. (laughs) This is all great. And this season, we wanted to do our first interstitial on something that we should say was fun. Oh, right. Let's do it. Welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels. And I write them. And uh, this week's interstitial is about books that start with a bang. That's different than books that bang, although most of them do also bang. Sure. But as Sarah said, she's like, I'm not trying to be dirty here. And I was like, okay, but maybe you should be. We are really talking about the craft of like how, how a great romance novel begins. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's something really interesting about the way that beginnings have evolved over the course of modern literature and certainly over the course of romance. So um, I saw a tweet go by a couple of days ago that was basically about like 
a concern about how now every time you open a book, you're like dropped down in the middle of the story and in medias race, as yes. they say. Right. And this particular person did not enjoy it, but I really do love that. Me too. So let's talk about... Um, we're, of course, going to give a bunch of examples, but I will admit we we decided this episode about an hour ago, and then I got home into the car and drove home, and then I was like, let's go. So it's going to be a little loose. I think it's going to be fine. This will be interesting, too, because we're really coming at it from so many different perspectives, right? Obviously, we're both readers, but you're an author. I'm an editor, right? So there's like a lot that I think we will have to say about how this how these beginnings happen, but also I, it has changed over time. And I feel like one of the most commonplace opening, like, structures right now is essentially it's a book with dual point of view. It doesn't matter if it's third or first. And we get sort of one chapter from each character's point of view, and then they meet, right? So I think there are a lot of books that kind of approach it that way, right? Like, I want to introduce you sort of to each of these characters, and then they're going to meet up. Other books will put them kind of together right there at the beginning in the first chapter and then go to sort of the who are they chapters. Mm -hmm. Old school romance, like sort of famously when we read Gentle Rogue, they didn't meet for 10 Forever. Right? I mean, you're like, what is going on? But it's funny that you say that because Gentle Rogue was one of the books that I immediately thought of as like So the way that – Maybe before we sort of get into structure, Examples, right? It's useful to think about how we thought about the question because I immediately when I when we decided that this was the topic, I was like, "All right, what are the books that instantly I can remember the beginnings of?" Yeah, and almost for like out of the first you know five that came to mind, Gentle Rogue was in there, and mm-hmm. that's because we meet Georgina shooting she's in the like bowels of a ship yep. waiting she's waiting to get off the ship to go find her betrothed and she's shooting radishes at cockroaches on the ship mm-hmm. and like there's something so awesome about that vision and like that is that scene is just like indelibly imprinted in my head yeah. And if you know, I remember when we when we read Gentle Rogue, I was so shocked that it took so long for James to make to like make his way into the story because in my brain I have retconned that whole book to she is shooting cockroaches in the bowels of a pirate ship and James just like walks in. Right. Like that's how that <laughs> right. all goes. And it does such great work that that beginning because it shows us who she is, how like brave she is, how how like she has no fucks to give. Like right. there's just and it's set, you know, in the 1700s and it feels like or you know, what is it? Early regency. So it's like the early 1800s and it just feels like okay, this is a woman who has un is unstuck from this time. So what are some of the other books even if we don't describe them that immediately you thought of? As having great openers. Well, a lot of them are books that we've talked about before. Yeah. Diana Quincy's Her Night with the Duke with the bar brawl mm-hmm. on the Great North Road. Lorraine Heath's Waking Up with the Duke with the conversation between the cousin mm-hmm. and the hero about how the hero has to impregnate the heroine because yeah. he, you know, he owes him a cock is one of the is the line there. Right. For me, I thought of 
Well, I thought of Brazen and the Beast. How does that begin? Oh. Uh, you are Brazen and the Beast, Sarah. <laughs> That's my book. I've, I had to think. It's been a while. <laughs> that begins with the heroine finding the hero unconscious in a carriage. I thought of Lord of Scoundrels, right? Which starts that off. That great prologue. The great prologue telling Dane story. I thought of a couple of contemporaries. I thought of Bet Me, right? Which is Min is in the same bar and gets dumped and then essentially meets Cal at that same, like in the same sort of scene. I also thought of Beautiful Stranger by Christina Lauren, which oh, is one of my favorites, one. where they like have a, what they think is essentially like casual sex, not even a one night stand, a, a one hour stand, I guess, in a bar, um, overlooking a bar, right? So it goes to, it goes to like, Really fast, essentially, their flirting turns into something more. Um, and I also thought of luck of the draw. I thought of that too. That sort of beginning in the in the driveway. Um, I thought of Miss Bev's book Tempest, where she shoots him and then realizes that she actually is going to be uh, his mail order bride. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if I have, I, I hope I'm. Sometimes I feel like I I'm a little worried. One of the things I was a little worried about as I was thinking of these books is, am I getting plots mixed up? Right, that that whole thing about you were right. saying about right, like how does my brain sort of organize and put these two together? But also Welcome to Temptation. Uh, in Welcome to Temptation by Jenny Cruzy, Sophie and her sister are driving into a small Ohio town. And they are in like a beat up Honda Civic or something. And the town's uh, water tower has been painted peach. But it was like red underneath. So the whole thing looks like a giant penis. <laughs> and I have probably read that book a million times. You know, I thought about Susan Elizabeth Phillips's Natural Born Charmer, mm -hmm. which uh, is with, well, Dean Robillard is the hero, and the heroine is walking down the side of, he's driving down the highway, and the heroine is on the side of the highway uh, wearing a beaver suit, like a, be a beaver costume. We can literally have an entire Susan Elizabeth Phillips conversation here, because I think some of those books are the best start, like the best beginnings I've ever had, right? So in Kiss, Kiss an Angel, it is Daisy Devereaux. I mean, literally the first line is implanted in my memory. It's like Daisy Devereaux had forgotten her bridegroom's name. To be totally, I mean, let, then let's just talk about Susan for a second. Yeah. Because Susan taught me how to start a book. Well. And she didn't teach me how to start a book in Nine Rules, which is clear because Nine Rules could lose the first like three chapters. <laughs> but- Susan taught me that when you write a manuscript, when you write a draft, almost always, in all situations, you could take the entire first chapter and throw it out. <laughs> and she is really not wrong. So let's maybe start there. Why is that the case? Because you need to clear your throat. Yes. Writers need to clear their throat the same way that singers, right? Singers have to right. do vocal warm-ups and, like, you know, work out their kinks and, like, cough and drink tea or <laughs> do whatever. I don't know. Whatever the hell they whatever do. Whatever they do. Like, yeah. they do. I'm sure they do a thing. They have a whole ritual, right? Robin Lovett is an opera, a trained opera singer. She could come on and tell us. <laughs> but, like, when they do all that stuff, that stuff isn't done on stage. Yeah. Right? They do it all. They prep it. They prep the instrument, and then they come out on stage and they sing. 
And the truth is that when we write, we often clear our throats. And so we end up writing and, you know, for all of us, I think, we start a book. There's just some of that is mess. Yeah. Until we get, you know, we find our groove, we're in the rhythm and like we understand the characters we're writing. Um, This is why when I say revision is where the magic happens, like part of it is that you can clear out all that early throat clearing Mm -hmm. um, and really give yourself a first scene that sings. But like not just first scene that sings, like a first line that sings. Can we talk about first pages? Yeah. Before you do that, let me tell you about. So when I lived in Texas, my roommate Mindy was like my, you know, we did Teach for America together. And, you know, keep in mind, I'm like, I've been a huge reader my entire life. And, you know, this is back before cell phones and stuff. So, like, we would go hang out at the bookstore all the time. Mindy was also a reader. And I remember her, and I still teach this rule to my kids and call it the Mindy rule. The first time we went to, like, a Barnes & Noble together in Houston, she would, like, pick up a book, look at it, put it down. Pick up a book, look at it, put it down. pick Like, open it, put it down. And I was like, what are you doing? And she's like, if I don't like the first sentence, I'm not going to like the rest of the book. And I was like, right? Whoa. (laughs) Right? Right? Ruthless culling from the first sentence. That was it. I mean, have I said this on the podcast before? It feels like season five. I've said everything that I think already once. But there's like this adage in genre that is that the first line sells your book and the last line sells your next book. Mm. I mean, when I tell you I think about that first line and it gets edited probably all the way until, like, through copy edits, like, in typeset pages, I'm still fussing with, like, is there a comma there? Is this the proper order of the words in this line? Like, what is, and so, you know, I think that when we talk about real estate in a book, Mm -hmm. especially now when we are up against 12 million other books and Netflix, and streaming, and movies, and life, and the internet, right? And Twitter, and Facebook, and social media, and TikTok, which now is like, you know, you're down the TikTok rabbit hole for hours at a time. Everything is competition for reader eyeballs for us. And the idea that, that we would ask readers to give us 10 pages, 20 pages, which back in the day was like, what else are they going to do? There's one thing on TV. <laughs> right. There are five books on the shelf. Like, they don't have a choice. Yeah. Right? They have choices We've now. got them. They're ours. That first page is the most valuable real estate in your book. Yeah. And I think about my first page, I mean, a lot. When I get typeset pages, I look at the whole first page. And I'm like, is this... So typeset pages are... I was going to say, explain what before. Sorry, are. I just realized. So over the course of your editing process in traditional publishing, but also in, in independent publishing, at some point, you're going to print your book out or you're going to see your book visualized or represented in exactly the way that a reader is going to. And so obviously, this is assuming like normal font size or whatever, ebook readers change everything. So I don't know what it looks like. Then it's, then I'm, you know, I don't know. So you get an actual PDF of the pages, the way they will look in the hands of a reader, unbound. So it'll just, you know, it looks like a double page spread of the book. And so it says, you know, chapter one, and it has the the dateline and then the kind of what, maybe 350 words, the first 350 words of your book. And you're looking at it and you're like, okay, is there anything here 
that could be moved to later, to like yeah. the next page, to make sure as much powerhouse stuff gets here on this first page. I don't know. That feels like it's marketing too, right? It's sure. It literally, literally, right? I just don't want, I don't want you to put it down. I don't want you to be, what was your friend's name? Mindy. I believe, look, Mindy, I'm here for you. I believe in you. And like, I agree. Yeah. So I think when, when we came up with this, I was like, all right, well, who are the people who really know how to use that real estate well? And Susan. I think every single one, right? So, like, let's go back to talking about, like, dropping you into the moment, right, in media res, which just means essentially, like, mid-action. It means in the middle, in the midst of things. So, one of my favorite openings is in Polaris Rising by Jesse Mihalik. Mm. And the opening sentence, the chapter one is, the steel toe of my boot slammed into the blonde Merc's knee with a satisfying crunch. He went down with a curse, but the two men holding my arms didn't release me even as I struggled in their grasp. The blow had been more luck than skill, but it was enough to make the fourth mercenary pause before trying to grab my legs again. This is a terrific opening, right? Like, we already know about this character, about, you know, her moxie. She's a fighter. It's not really about skill. It's just about, like, pure adrenaline. Obviously, I think people will not be surprised love any opening where a heroine is trapped into a corner. Mm-hmm. And this is clearly what's happening. You've got four mercenaries, and she's maybe taken one down. But this is, a, a like, a really good example of, like, we don't know why she's fighting, We don't know where the fight is located. We don't know anything about it. All we're doing is getting this look at this character and their behavior inside of what to anybody would be a rather upsetting situation. Yes. The same thing with Brazen and the Beast, right? Like there's a man on the carriage floor. We don't know how he got there. She doesn't know how he got there. Now it's just dealing with this. And I think that that... It is to me, I enjoy these openings quite a bit. I do too. And I think that is the answer to that Twitter question, the sort of underlying question of that tweet is why. And the answer is because there isn't time anymore. Nobody's giving us time. Yeah. But also because it's fun that way. Yeah. Right? I mean, the first line I already said, waking up with the Duke, but the first line of waking up with the Duke, which I will remember until I die, is a line of dialogue Right? So talk about immediate risk. And it is, I'll consider your debt paid in full if you get my wife with child. (laughs) Right? And you're like, holy crap. (laughs) What's happening? This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Tori Jean, author of Finding Jean Kelly. Listen, this one sounds so charming. Evie O'Shea is our heroine, and she has a she's a little stuck in the mud, Jen. She needs a little bit of a shakeup. It happens. It does happen. Only luckily for Evie, it doesn't happen for everyone this way. Enter Liam Kelly, her childhood best friend, turned high school rival. Clad in a Henley and equipped with toned forearms. And uh, Evie, of course, is initially 
determined to keep Liam at bay, but then a thing happens. I think it's, it's a, a family wedding. Woo! It the is pressure. a family wedding. Family announcement shakes up Evie's world. She needs a date, and Liam just happens to be there, handsome, and he can dance, I assume, <laughs> because of Gene Kelly. Fake dating. Time, time to tee it up, right? Listen, you guys love fake dating, so here's one for you. There's also a little bit of long-time pining and a cinnamon roll hero with dimples of doom. You can find out more about Finding Gene Kelly by following Tori on Instagram at author Tori Jean. That's uh, T-O-R-I-E. And you can get it on KU, but signed copies are also available at Blue Willow Bookstore in Houston. Thanks to Tori Jean for sponsoring this week's episode of Faded Mates. My editor, Carrie Farron at Avon, I remember a long, long time ago, I mean, a million years ago when when we first started working together, she told me that a title should tell a story and leave the reader asking a question. And I think that's true of a first line and a first page and a first scene. And that's because I think, like, once you use that prime real estate to really draw in the viewer, like a cold open, you know, we talked about this when we did the Heartbreaker episode, but I think a lot of a lot of modern romance starts with some version of a cold open. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of Andy Christopher's Thank You Next. Mm-hmm. The heroine is a div- divorce attorney. And we land, she opens that story in um, a moment where the heroine has just won a bunch of, like, big settlement for um, her client who has a terrible husband. And, like, you flip the page and the husband asks the the heroine out for dinner. And she's like, oh, I'd rather, like, (laughs) peel the skin from my bones and go to dinner with you, right? Right. And so you just, like, you have this moment where it's like, okay, we see instantly, like, what this character's good at, what, like, they're facing, who they are. You know, in in Andy's world, heroines are always so, like, you know, acerbic and clever, and they have such clever retorts. And so suddenly you're just, you're deep in the moment. And so I guess the reason why I'm talking about Andy there is because it doesn't have to be get my wife with child, I'm killing the mercenary. I'm just yes. like, sometimes it can just, you know, I think about the beginning of Georgie all along, which isn't out until January, and that's Kate Claiborne's book. But it happened, like, that first scene is so powerful, right? It's the heroine coming home to her yes. hometown. And she goes into, like, the local greengrocer, and it feels like in the hands of so many authors would just be like, why are we watching this? Kate gives us so much internal Georgie yeah. in that moment. Um, and, of course, the, the hero is right there, too. Right. And he's, like, taciturn and gruff and, you know, like, oh, they have— it just yeah. delivers on every—on all—it fires on all cylinders for a romance. Right. right. But, again, nobody's getting killed. Nobody's unconscious in a carriage. Like, it doesn't have to be. But I—so then I think the question is— And, like, we're going to talk in generalities, right? It's not like we're going to, you know, talk about when it doesn't work by talking about specific examples, but... Well, I will say this. Yeah. When it doesn't work is when we're reading throat clearing. Yeah, right. Is when we're reading, like, let's do 10 pages of a character, like, talking on the phone about nothing. It's interesting to me sometimes the the books I remember that have, like, kind of that opening where I'm like, why is this starting here? Is um, 
often if characters are traveling, right, they're going from one place to another. But it's like instead of starting when they arrive, it's like, you know, they're in the car, they're on the plane, they're right? And it's kind of like this to me feels almost like a television show, right? Like sometimes in a TV show you get like the establishing shot, the plane lands, and then we see the people getting off and we right. understand that these are New York characters. City was unseasonably hot that October. Right, right. And Things like, like okay, that. Well, <laughs> Fine, but save that for chapter two. Right, exactly. So often this, what it feels like is it's just exposition, right, which is like explaining things, but without any kind of investment in, well, why do we care? So in Kiss an Angel, right, when we get Daisy Devereaux doesn't know her bridegroom's name, we understand that it's her wedding day. And there's any number of ways that it could have started, right? Like, but by telling us this piece of information, we instead know that whoever she is marrying, this isn't someone she knows well. This is perhaps under duress. And that despite that, she is still going through with it. I mean, that to me is the most interesting thing about that opening is, but wait, why would anybody agree to get married if they don't know the, their husband's, soon-to-be husband's name? Yeah. And so even though this is a very, you know, this is not starting out in the middle of a fight, it is starting out with us one, like, really a huge question. Wait, how did she get here that mm-hmm. she doesn't know his name? And I think that's the part that I would say, like, as an editor, it's kind of like, where is that moment where we really see these characters are acting in ways that seem rather spectacular. Right. And why? I mean, I think that's why Beautiful Stranger works for me. Like, why would you have, why would you meet a man and have sex with him in a club? Sarah is the uh, main character of that book. She's pretty staged. She's like moved from Chicago, right? We sort of uh, gradually start to understand she's been thrown over, but like, why would someone do this? And then Mm -hmm. that's the hook that wants now I want to keep reading. Now I want to know why. It makes me think about the love hypothesis, which we, you know, know has been a real juggernaut over the last year since it came out. And part of, I think, why is because Allie really knows how to start a book. And it begins, so it's a fake relationship story, right? And the first line of the love hypothesis is her essentially, like, kissing this man in a hallway. And then it backs into, oh, now we've done this and we've been seen, which was my, like, she does it because she wants her friend to see her kissing someone for, there are reasons, it's romance reasons, right? Mm -hmm. But then, like, once it's done, there's, all the fallout comes from that moment. And easily... I mean, if I had been writing this story, I would have started in the wrong place. Yeah. I would not have started it there. But that's the money. <laughs> right. That's why we're all here, right? That we, when we love a fake relationship romance, like, we love it for that moment. So, like, Allie just served it up. Here it is. Here's the moment you love, and we're going to start here. Right. And that's not to say everyone should do that. I'm just saying, like, there are a thousand different right ways to start a book. How about that? Okay. Yeah. Um, the issue is just finding the one that's right for you. But remembering that, like, 
this is important work. Like these beginnings, beginnings are essential. Yeah. Maybe it's worth us like talking about like, okay, there's a million different right ways to start a book. And this I think really leads into thing that you spend a lot of time talking about. You've done classes on conflict. I, when I think of this question, like, okay, how can you start? Like they're setting. Now that doesn't not, by the way, does not always have to be, it was a unseasonably hot day in October in New York or whatever. I truly mean setting in the sense that like, oh shit, we are somewhere. Like I think of Whiteout by Adrian Anders. Yep. Being an example of that. It's character. Yep. Or it's, it's the conflict. It's it, right. It, it, like literally some kind of external conflict. I'm in the middle of a fist fight and I don't know who these mm-hmm. people are, but I know something's happening. Are there other ways besides those obvious ones? In my mind, there's nothing there's nothing else because nothing is outside of those three buckets. Right. I mean, I think ideally you want to you want a beginning that gives you all of it. You want it's that Michael Haig's, you know, character the five things that we need a character to be in order for us to want to watch them in a movie and it's uh they need to be sympathetic they need to be threatened they need to be likable they need to be funny or they need to be powerful or like some combination of those those things in sophie jordan's the duke buys a bride mm-hmm. the first line of that book is marcus the fifth duke of ottenbury woke with a startled jolt face down in horse shit <laughs> right so like yeah. They say, don't start a book with a character waking up. No. I mean, Sophie Jordan just blew that directly out of the water, right? Like, that rule is stupid in this case. Right. Because what she does in that tiny first sentence is give you immense power, a weakened state, um, and, like, a big question. Like, what is this person doing In this scenario, right? But to your point, that's character, that's setting. Yep. And there's got to be conflict here. Sure, right? Like, why is this Duke waking up in horseshit? In what, like, 12 words? Yeah. And again, this isn't isn't an episode about first lines, though it certainly could be, because I think part of it is, like, they all go together. I mean, that that should be the work of that first scene. It's like, it gives you everything. And so you feel like you're in it with these characters. Here's another really good example that I think, like, delivers kind of all three in one package, which is Getaway Girl by Tessa Bailey. When I woke up this morning, I didn't plan on crashing a wedding, but here I am. In leather pants and a faded T-shirt, I didn't even bother dressing up, which is drawing censorious raised eyebrows from the Charleston upper crust. There you go. I mean, it's great. Another... When I woke up, right? Although I, what I also like about this is, right, when it's in first person, you have that ability to, like, put that spin on, right? Like, I didn't plan on it, but here I am, right? Yeah. We get that sense of regret or potentially— the record scratch. Yes. <laughs> Wait, let me tell you how this all began, right? You're probably wondering how I got here. <laughs> I often— will sometimes recommend essentially to people like your real beginning is here in chapter two or three. Like I'll find like what you were saying, right? Like I don't always necessarily recommend that they like cut what is, you know what I mean? Like, so that's a really interesting question. Like what happens to what was in chapter one or two is sometimes it gets cut, but sometimes it's just in the wrong place. It's just in the wrong place. Like it's often 
and this is, you know, whatever, every, your mileage may vary, but Susan, when Susan taught me this job, this, this rule, you know, rule, she, uh, pointed out that it's often backstory. Yeah. And it is often backstory. It is the like, well, first I have to show the heroine alone, and then I have to show the hero alone, and then they get to meet together. And it's like, well, what if we do just get them to this place where they meet? Yeah. And then we back into all of the hero and heroine stuff. And that doesn't work always. I mean, of course. This is not how to write every book. Well, Lord of Scoundrels is a perfect example. The entire prologue is backstory. Starting with him as a literal child. Yes. And you have to be Loretta to pull that off. So, I mean, in this case, it's, it you know, there's lots of different ways to do this. this isn't like a, a, a rule, but I think it really speaks to this question of, of, and I think we probably read the same thread, about why is it that readers are sort of struggling to get into, into books? What is it that we, that we need as, as now as readers? And I really think that the longer in, in a modern romance, one I'm buying off the shelves now, the longer it takes for me to get these love interests on page and like see what's going on between them, the lo- the the more likely it is I am to put it down and not pick it back up. I, I mean, yeah, and it's for all the reasons that I said before, right? It's there's so much competition and attention is shorter and shorter and shorter. And we can bemoan that as an industry. Like, writers can say all they want. Like, oh, it's so unfortunate that readers, you know, don't give us runway anymore. Like, that they, you know, that readers don't want, you know, the exposition, the, like, beautiful, you know, the setting, all of the rich tapestry of, you know, elegant Mm -hmm. prose that we used to be able to give them. But, like, okay, but... That's the way that it is now, right. right? We we can't put the genie back in the bottle. So, like, right. now we have to figure out how to write a fucking great book starting the story in the right place. And the truth is that, you know, that's not new. We've always had to start the story in the right, pla- in the right place. Right, right. And there's a reason why we love Lord of Scoundrels, and that's because that prologue is amazing. <laughs> But it's also proof, we mm-hmm. say, like, don't start with prologues. Readers don't like prologues. Aaron from Mel- from Heaving Bosoms doesn't read them, right? Don't start, don't put anything valuable in the prologue because readers don't read it. And Well, like, that's silly, right? Like, prologues do a lot of work. Um, so I think, I just want everybody listening who's thinking about writing, like, none of these are rules. This is just a fun conversation of books that begin really well. Can I confess something? So it's sometimes interesting because people ask me, like, what do I see when I'm editing or how has editing changed me? And, like, here is, like, a weird, unexpected thing. And I think it's actually kind of related to this, Mm -hmm. I hope. Um, Before I started editing, I really loved flashbacks. Like, I really did. I was like, oh, this is great. Like, let me flashback and see what's going on with with this person in their previous life or whatever. And as an editor, I'm like, you don't need those. Almost entirely, I feel like they are what the author needed to figure out who their characters were, but it almost never feels like the right thing 
to put it like sort of in the book as a flashback. You mean like pause, set, yes. the, set the text in italics yes. to tell the past? Yes. Okay, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it depends. I mean, like, obviously. Of course, they're blah, blah, blah. Like, right, standard disclaimers about there always being exceptions. I mean, like, Sherry Thomas and I have both both written books where, like, whole section, like, whole threads of the book are flashback. Sure. But, yeah, I mean, I would say that if the flashback is, like, one time I had this conversation with my dad and he hurt my feelings. Yeah. No, that's a show-don't-tell moment, right? Yeah, right. Or I'm always really curious to think, okay, so here – and part of the reason I think I said this is because what you said, which is, like, the first couple chapters are often backstory, right? I mean, flashbacks are literally backstory. And the thing that is, like, interesting to me as, a like, an editor now is if you put something in a flashback, what you're doing is you're showing it to the reader, but this main character who experienced it – has not shown it to their romantic That's love interest. That's what I mean, yeah, by show, don't tell, right? Like, show the love interest. Right. So you have cut out, you've, like, right, cut the corner. The, the one main character and the reader know something the other character doesn't. And it's kind of like, so then I find myself almost always thinking, well, okay, you've, told, you've shown it to the reader, but you haven't shown it to the love interest, so how are you going to deal with that now? And I, so I always feel like instead I'm like, if this really was your your background, if this is really something that happened to you, how would you communicate that to this person you're falling in love with? Mm-hmm. When would be the time when you would essentially be, you know, so afraid of losing them or something? You had such a, an over huge overreaction, it seemed, to something going on that now you have to say, well, here's why. This is what happened to me. Yeah. And I feel like that it's related to this question to me about beginnings because I feel like it's that sort of same thing. If you're just showing something to the reader, but not, but the characters aren't really experiencing it, right, as part of their love story, then my question is, like, why? Yeah. It's such a tricky business, this one. And I think that um, the thing that, layers onto that flashbacks feel that way to me um conversations about like whatever's happening in a character's life in that first scene also don't work for me usually um unless what's happening in a character's what life uh is relevant to the you know main conflict like the main like the the meaty stuff of the book right like I'll consider your debt repaid if you get my wife with child is a fine conversation to begin a book with, right? Right. But, like, you know, I sat down at the bar with my buddies and we had a conversation about, like, work and sports or whatever. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm like, sure. this is not – I am not citing any particular book here. No, right? We're making <laughs> up, like, generic like, examples. And yeah. then, you know, we go on and on and on. And then 12 pages in, in walks, you know, the love of my – like, the person who I'm going to be with, and now we have our meet cute. I'm not really sure why, like, there's a good example of, like, you could trim all that stuff out at the beginning, have the meet cute, and then back into, like, the relationship with the buddies. Yeah. Um, And again, I think this is just a moment where, like, for a lot of writers, like, that's in the editing, right? That's in the revision, and it is really hard to take words out of the beginning because it feels like, oh, no, the beginning is 
Like, uh, that's, right. that's set. Yeah. But I don't want to dwell too much on, like, the way books do it wrong, like you said. Um, I think we should talk about other books that do it really well. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Lucy LaRue, author of Making Her His, a stepbrother romance. People are always asking us for stepbrother romance recommendations. This is a really favorite trope. And in this one, Alex's widower father gets remarried when he's in his 20s. And he is kind of like, I cannot believe that this is happening. I thought we were happy, Dad, just the (laughs) two of us. And um, when he's really surprised to find that his new stepsister is so charming. And their friends takes a couple years for things to develop into, like, more of a romance. Um, But this is part of... uh, a series that's really going to lean into obviously the stepbrother romance trope the she's a stem scientist heroine and also a bit of an age gap so if you are interested in those like particular flavors on your stepbrother romance cake here you go <laughs> making her his is the romance for you you can get making her his in KU right now or in print or audio wherever you get your print and audiobooks. Uh, you can learn more as always in show notes or follow Lucy LaRue at Lucy the Novelist on Twitter or Instagram. Thanks to Lucy for sponsoring the episode. I want to talk about Sally Thorne's Angelica Frankenstein Makes Her Match, which is Probably the weirdest romance novel I've ever read. This one just came out, everybody, literally just like a week or two ago. Two weeks ago. Um, and it is a retelling of Frankenstein through the lens of Victor Frankenstein's fictional. I mean, they're all fictional, but he doesn't have a sister in the original. Right. And in this one, he has a, a sister, Angelica. And um, the beginning of this book, it dropped, I mean, Sally drops you directly into the story. Victor and and Angelica are in the morgue, choosing <laughs> body parts for both of them to create, essentially, Frankenstein's monster. Um, Victor is going to create Frankenstein's actual monster from the book, and, and Angelica is going to create a match for herself, a mate for mm-hmm. herself. And it is real weird, you guys. I mean, they are picking body parts at the morgue, which may, your 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 mileage may vary on this, but Sally is very funny. And this book sets, I mean, talk about a first scene that sets you directly down in the story, sets you with character and setting and conflict, and then delivers you, because within the first chapter, the monster is the body parts are selected, the monster is sewn together, and he is awakened. Like, boom, 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 chapter one over. And so then there you are in right. a moment where you're like, this book either works for me or it doesn't, but either way, I know exactly what this book is, and I am here for it. And, you know, it was a real weird, but I like weird. I mean, I would say, can we use the word, it's, it was like novel, like literally, like a novelty, right? Like yeah. you had not read anything like I that have before. literally never read anything like this before. And I think that that sometimes can be a huge draw, yeah. right? Like, But talk about a book that needed to start where it did. Like, yeah. if there had been like a lead up of like Angelica and Victor, you know, 
thinking about it, thinking going about to do it, it talking yeah, about waiting it, for the right. weather to turn. Like it just all was exactly, it started exactly in the right place, right? Also for a book that could have been grotesque, like for a whole process, like we're talking about a book that's like related to a horror novel, the, f- mm-hmm. the first horror novel, right? So in that situation, in that particular situation, like if she had spent too much time in that chapter, Mm-hmm. or let it go over multiple scenes, then we might have really lost whimsy, right? And I yeah. think, like, that's what's playing out here is this, like, balance of is it grotesque or is it whimsical? And it needed to be, like, this. Is, it's a good example of, like, just a tightly done first scene that establishes the tone of the book, Okay, so let's talk about tone, I think, is actually a great thing to talk about, too, Mm. because I do think that openings can really do a lot of work about, like, communicating this. And Susan. Yeah. Brilliant, right? Every single one of her books, it's like you know exactly what you're going to get. I'm going to talk about a book that that had a really – I sometimes use the word propulsive – to describe a book where the opening was one where I was like, oh, shit, I have to know what's about to happen. And so a book that I thought did the, a great job with this, I believe I've kind of mentioned this book before, is the book Waylin by Theodora Taylor. This is part of a duology, which, you know, typically I don't do, but I really was into this book. And it starts off um, with the main character helping another woman, like, run away. And what it starts with is is she's remembering. It's payback ain't a bitch. It's a bastard. And that bastard's me. People don't get away with crossing me ever. Waylon said that to me once, his eyes glittering like blue diamonds inside his stone-cold face. And I believed him. But then and now, right? Both then and now, right? And so then she's talking about what happens. And so the whole beginning of this chapter is her essentially respecting and loving Wayland, but she still crossed him. Mm-hmm. And at the end, he essentially, like, he and the, uh, like, these guys show up. And you are, and the whole time I was like, wait, what is going on? Like, literally what is happening here? Why would you cross someone you knew could not be crossed, right? Right. And and what would compel you to to do this? And then what I loved about it is... So, like, at the end of chapter one, it's not really a spoiler, right? It's like, you know, he finds them. And then chapter two is a year earlier. Mm. So then you know you have to go all the way back and move forward in time then to, like, get to this scene. And I've always been a sucker for beginnings like that. I've also been a sucker for, like, in movies when that happens, like, it's some action sequence, and then it's, like, 10 days earlier. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm always really curious, like, okay, like, so what is it that brought, brought you to this place? And so I really think of you know, there's a few romances that I can think of that have kind of that, like, like a cold open, I guess. But mm-hmm. it's, like, not just, like, an action scene. It's literally, like, they're going to get to this bad place. Yep. But then I'm going to go back to the beginning yep. and show you how they got there. Yeah. That's a that. really fun way of doing it. Yeah. You know, a lot of the books that I thought of were instantly were uh, historicals. Oh, yeah. Because, again, as we've talked about, like, 
historicals have a lot of permission to do things that contemporaries don't have permission to do because of the realm of fantasy that they exist in. The reason why I actually thought up this episode idea, Jen, is because when we were in Chicago, Adriana and I were together, and I talked to her about Elizabeth Hoyt's To Desire a Devil, which is the fourth in the Legends of the Four Soldiers series. Have you read this series? No. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, Jen. <laughs> I, I Like, you said no, and then I was like, okay, fine. And then, it, like, it processed, like, my my COVID brain. You like, were, like, you wrote, downloaded immediately. You know, and then I was like, wait, episode what? Episode over. <laughs> no, oh, my God. Oh, my God, Jen, I'm so happy that you haven't read this series because you are going to fucking love this series. Anyway, Elizabeth Hoyt at her, like, what is it you call people? Their imperial period. The this imperial is, like, period. Like truly, people love Maiden Lane. I, I mean, Maiden Lane's great. The Prince trilogy is great. But like, man, this is the sweet spot for me. This these four books. So the last one is called "To Desire a Devil," and the general premise of it is that the hero has been thought dead for just shy of seven years. Which, because you are a historical reader you know, is the magic number, right? He's a war hero. All these soldiers, all these heroes are soldiers, are war soldiers, like real, like, you know, have been through it in the war. Anyway, the heroine's uncle is the person who will inherit the earldom on, like, day seven year. (laughs) And um, they're living in his house. Like, and, like, Because it's been a long time. So we have seen this story before. Like, this is a very common story. And so I think also in historicals and contemporaries, right? Like, we talk about there's a reason why interstitials exist. Like, the stories aren't always that new. Like, this is a a plot we have seen before. Well, let me tell you. (laughs) Chapter one. Let me paint you a picture. Chapter one of To Desire a Devil Beatrice, the heroine, is having, like, a political tea for her uncle, and they're talking about, like, I don't know, pensions for war heroes. Like, real, like, dry and important stuff, right? (laughs) So she's, like, serving cake and pouring tea, and there are all these, like, men going harumph, harumph, harumph around her, and then there's, like, a bang on the door and, like, a commotion in the hallway, and then the door to the drawing room slams open, and in comes this man who is huge and just chaotic (laughs) and he comes toward her speaking like rapid fire French and she's like, this is England. And then he grabs her by the, the arms and she has a moment of recognition in the text, but like, We see that she has the recognition, but we don't get the full force of her recognition. And then he collapses (laughs) unconscious at her feet. Yes. And then her her husband, her uncle is like, who the fuck is this guy? Where is the butler? Because obviously he's like, get me someone to handle whatever this is. And uh, she's like, this is him. The Earl's returned. And it is so great. And you're like, (gasps) what is going to happen next? It's such a great beginning. Yeah. Because it starts in this, like, very ordinary historical romance way. And it, but the scene ends in this, like, 
powerhouse of a moment. And anyway, I described this to Adriana, and she immediately downloaded all four books. Of course. And then today texted me and was like, I've read the first three. (laughs) This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Eva Moore, author of caught a vibe. Okay, so this one is really cool because we haven't seen a ton of romances that are related to the pandemic and set during the pandemic. And this one definitely is. It begins right sort of pre, as the pandemic is starting, um, the heroine is a sex toy inventor, has started a company. Amazing. Has made this like remarkable sex toy that like allows you to have like all sorts of multiple orgasms at one time. The hero is a real doofus of a tech writer who is holding this sex toy in his hand at the very (laughs) beginning of this book, going like, I don't understand, is this like some kind of new joystick for video games? Yes, it is, sir. (laughs) Um, But... And it's like this very delightful, this great, great meet cute. And then, um, unfortunately, the pandemic hits. The heroine is, they have a one night stand, and the heroine is immediately sick. Like, and then he has to stick around, Jen. They have to quarantine together, Sarah. What other choice do they have? Yeah, so he comes to her house and basically, like, moves into her house with her after their one night stand to, like, Love her and care for her and make her soup. I also hope they use these sex toys, Sarah. Check off sex toy. Yes, they use the sex toys. It's super sexy. If you like a heroine with a cool job, really sexy sex toy play. If you like a hero who's a little dorky and delightful, if you like forced proximity or sick bed scenes, this one is for you. You can find Caught a Vibe in print or ebook, and you can follow you can follow Eva on all of her socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at author Eva Moore. Thank you to Eva for sponsoring this week's episode of Faded Mates. You know, it's funny that you say this because I was thinking I imprinted very hard on Julie Garwood, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, those prologues. Those prologues. And in some of them, right, like, it's like hey. these – well, you know, they've been legally married and one of them's four. Fine. Um, I love but, that prologue so much. But yeah. I do too. In The Bride, which is probably, I mean, it is hard to list a favorite Julie Gartwood, but it might be The Bride for me. His first wife is is buried. And, and but she's buried in like un, in an unholy ground, and we realize essentially that like a, there's a a bad person, you know what I mean, uh, on the way, who's like secretly glorying this. And then chapter one, the first line is right. They said he killed his first wife. Papa said maybe she needed killing, and so the whole entire <laughs> oh right, the whole entire beginning oh, is Garwood line. By the way. <laughs> Right, exactly, is we realize that there's going to be a second marriage. We understand that this young woman. First wife. Right, is going to be in danger. And that Alec Kincaid is perhaps someone who is totally to be feared. And you know what? How many times have I read that book? By what name should they call her (laughs) in that book? Oh, God, I love that book so much, Sarah. They should call her mine is the Ugh. response. Man, it's so good. <laughs> it is. But, right, I mean, again, it's like, look, in a contemporary, you cannot, like, 
just kill off the first wife by an evil, you know, bad guy and then, like, have, right, this new wife be like, no, right? I I mean, mean, you can't. And that's it. I think in historicals, like, there's just so much more room for it to be, like, something really super duper over the top. Well, there's also, and I wish I could remember which one. Maybe you can remind me. Maybe you will remember. But there's also the Garwood that begins with the heroine is at the funeral for her first husband. And oh, everybody yeah. is told in the you know third per, third person sure. omniscient is like everyone knew that she was so sad and like she was alone right. praying like she was yes. she'd been kneeling at this altar for like however long she was praying she was praying and clearly she was just wrecked yes and like this then like sobs like she starts to sob and then like the camera you could see it's so cinematic the camera like pans around the front of her. And she's like laughing with glee because she's free. Dead, he is dead. Yeah, and it is. I mean, like again, now you can't both all of these, right? Like the end of To Desire a Devil also has this moment, right, where like the line, the kick, what we call the kicker of the scene, right, the very final line of the chapter, is like just perfect, like. Enough to make you, again, it's the last line sells the next book, right? The last line sells the next chapter. Right. And these are the moments that we remember because as readers, they're the moments that like hardwired themselves into our brains and made us turn the page. How do you then transition from this amazing first scene that, you know, this first page that's like drawn everybody in with a big hook to... Kind of the work of the romance. Like, what do you think is, I mean, I just think it flows, right, from this kind of beginning. Obviously, in your ideal world, in the Jen ideal world, the hero and heroine have met in the first scene, right, in some way, and interacted. And so the second scene is Fallout. Yeah. There's a conceptual, uh, an writing idea called scene and sequel. I don't recommend that people read this book because it was written in the 1960s and it's, you know, written by a dude and, you know, who knows what's in there. But um, the, the idea is a good one, which is that scenes are where action happens mm-hmm. and sequels are where response to action happens, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about the structure of a book, especially genre, you have the scene, and then immediately you have to have the sequel. Like, what what comes from it, right? Right. X happens, and therefore Y occurs. And so that's how the romance ends up happening, right? Romance is sequel, not scene. Yes. There, you just got a little taste of... <laughs> that's all you needed. What Sarah thinks about when she writes. But, you know, I want to talk about, because, again, we sort of, we've, because it's us, we've lingered on these books that have these, like, enormous beginnings, right? But can we talk about Dylan Allen's The Jezebel? Which I think is a really great beginning of a contemporary. It's a, this one, man, drama-rama. But the the main character, Reagan, um, it begins with her alone in her house, or she's not alone in her house, she's a ostensibly a single mother like she's she's in her house and her children are wherever they are in the house um and it begins with a man entering the room and saying i need to speak with you and she has an immediate cold like 
terrifying response to it because 19 in in the state it's set in the state of Texas and in the state of Texas when you serve somebody divorce papers they have 20 days to respond and she has and Dylan writes like she had literally woken up that morning and marked the 19th red x on the calendar right and in comes this man who she has served, who is her you know is the man she's married to the father of her children um and he has returned basically to say i'm going to destroy you right and I this like is, it already. I'm this like, is not second chance with this terrible man. He, <laughs> what he, the way he is going to destroy her. So it turns out through this, through this, like again, very tightly done first scene. We learned he impregnated their nanny. That he was a monster. That they, you know, he doesn't care about his kids. But now he's going to use the kids against her. And he has photographs of her with a man. And he's like. Who is this person? If you tell me who he is, I'll save everything. Like, it'll, I'll give you everything you want. But you have, and she instinctively knows that if she does, he's gonna harm this man. And so she, you know, she realizes that, like, what she's, I think that chapter ends with, like, she was in for the fight of her life, or such began the fight of, you know, the fight of her life. It's a, um, an age gap romance. She is older than the the man in the photographs is the hero. Mm-hmm. They have known each other for years and years. Um, she is significantly older than he is, um, and it is a really like it's a very lovely. It's a it's a really kind of it's a saga, right? Like it's a it's mm-hmm. a da- it's a real Danielle Steele feel. Dylan yeah. Allen and Kenny Ryan are friends, and it. It shows. And it shows. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but that beginning, that sort of, again, it's, yes, of course, it's dramatic. I mean, like, there's a divorce involved, and there's this terrible man, and he's impregnated the nanny, and she's, you know, there are these photographs. But, you know, it's not, it's it's a scene where dialogue does a lot of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't a lot of action here in this scene, and it's just a really intense, emotional scene that makes you feel like your heart races when you're reading it because she really drops you into this like agonizing moment where a woman is having is against the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Um I love that beginning. I think it's great. Can I tell you about another one of my again like this is as I as we're talking just like books I really remember the opening, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's like a lot to live up to. Um because it doesn't it doesn't have to be a gimmick, right? I don't know if right. that makes sense, right? But I am interested also, like, there are, like, memorable openings in the sense that what, like, kind of what would you do? And so in this case, in the book, um, it's In Skate's Trouble by Kate Meter. Oh, Kate does a great opening. Kate does a great opening. And this yeah. is one of my favorites, which is... Uh, Ford Callahan is a hockey player, and he is in a hotel room for the night. And his hotel has, like, a balcony with, like, seating on it. And he's, like, sitting out there, and he doesn't – that people on the next balcony, there's just, like, a divider, don't realize that he could hear them, right? And so it says, up until 10 minutes ago, Ford Callahan would never have dreamed of eavesdropping on Mm. a quiet conversation, 
right? And then he started talking about how, right, like he, you know, this, you know, true, his grandmother was sure. known to leave a room telling people to argue loudly so she didn't have to strain herself, but she was from <laughs> the trashier side of the family, and Ford's mom had raised him better than that. However, all bets were off when the conversation was about oral sex, or more particularly, how the entire male species knew Jack about it. So he overhears, like, the woman he's about to fall in love with and her two friends essentially, like, just capping on these men who do not know how to go down. I and love it. It is a great, great opening because he cannot reveal himself. These are strangers. But he also cannot help but, like essentially make her an offer she can't refuse i love it and it is kate meter does write a great opening i mean she uh, yeah she really does my my favorite kate meter book is playing with fire about a lady firefighter and the mayor of chicago well in the beginning of that book she saves him from a fire in the drake hotel no or is that when they in meet the in the previous book, that's book. When they yeah. meet. she cuts him out of a lamborghini doesn't he Yes. No, that's something else. Right. Sorry, I that mean, happens in a different situation. Does, but, listen, no, all those books are right. This is, it's great. And no, she's on like, she's been named like America's favorite firefighter or something, right? <laughs> and uh, and uh, for fa- for saving him, like basically he was in danger and she saved him. And um, she's now on like her 34th date in 10 months or something. And that's the guy right. is like that's mocking right. her at the table and in comes the mayor. And this is like real like enemies to lovers vibe here because he cannot deal with the fact that like this woman has saved him and like kind of is constantly like reminding him of the fact. (laughs) Um, And she can't stand him because he's like rich and powerful and the mayor and, you know, she's a city firefighter and like they can't be friends. (laughs) Um, But he comes and he comes in and interrupts the date and like embarrasses her. And it's great. It's so fun. Yeah. Uh, Kate does a great beginning. Yes. There's so many great beginnings. And I just want to say, like, you know, there's, it it doesn't take, it doesn't take fireworks. When I, like, sometimes work with authors and we, like, sort of talk about their beginnings, it really is this question of, like, paying attention to the beginnings that work for you. Right? Right. And then, right, thinking to yourself, how can I how can I put this on page? Some of the hardest working authors, I think, in terms of writing beginnings are paranormal authors. And what I mean by that is if there is a world building that has to happen, right, or, or fantasy too, how do you get us into the action right away without – like sort of sec- right but but still giving us the world and i like this is terrible but we obviously love the book a heart of blood and ashes right that's a good example though what do we do with that book start at chapter 3 <laughs> right because we're I, not fantasy readers because we're I not mean, fantasy readers melvin is amazing and fantasy readers love love the beginnings sure. of that book yeah but i but was it like deliver- but that's a different thing right it's delivering a different kind of thing right. you know to this point Joanna Shoup's Tycoon, which I know I've talked – I think I talked about it on the very first interstitial we ever had. Yeah. Um, it's Strangers on a Train, right, road trip, set in the Gilded Age. And that book begins – so the heroine is like a perfume counter girl who's witnessed a murder in a department store. So you would think that with that idea, 
Joanna would have started with witnessing the murder at the department store. And she doesn't. She starts that book and it begins, Ted Harper never saw it coming. One minute he was alone on the platform and the next he'd acquired a wife. (laughs) And the next line is, there you are, dear husband. Let's not miss the train. (laughs) I love it so much. And like suddenly like, boom, these two are together on the train platform. And then surprise, they end up on the private rail car of the president of the bank. I mean, listen. Sure. If you're going to approach a man on a train platform and pretend to be his wife, make sure it's the president of the Bank of Manhattan. And then he has a private railway car. (laughs) Joanna knows the job. But the point is, like, what a good example. Now, listen, it's also a novella, right? So Joanna was like, I don't have enough runway to start at the perfume counter. That's maybe a good example of what I was saying earlier, which is books can, like, there are multiple right places to start a book. Right. Because if she had an entire novel to work with, she She might have started at the perfume counter. Can I confess something, which is, I think the beginning of Fifty Shades of Grey is brilliant. You need to remind me what the beginning of of Fifty Shades of Grey is. Her roommate is sick. Oh, right. And she has to go. And sends her in her place. Yeah, and she trips over the... Thing. And she right, she trips. Oh, and but to me, it was not. I mean, so then she like trips over, and Christian like pays attention to her. But to me, the <laughs> thing that was so brilliant about that is this sense of how it could have gone another way. What if her roommate hadn't been sick? Right, because it really put mates right there in the beginning. We understand that it was a strange unexpected series of events that puts her Anastasia, Anastasia, whatever, in in his sights. Mm-hmm. And that gives that whole beginning sort of a magical feeling. Mm-hmm. Because readers cannot help but think of other, right? Like, what if they hadn't have met, right? What if at this right. moment she wouldn't have been there? She was only there right. for, like, the strangest possible reason. Right. And I think that there, that to me is one of the reasons why the opening of that book is so compelling mm-hmm. because we understand from the from the jump that it's luck and circumstances. Yeah, right. Well, it's Allie Hayeswood, right? What if she had kissed someone else in the dark hallway? Yes. What if yes. Joanna's heroine had picked somebody else on the train? What if a different Duke had walked into the roadside tavern when Diana's heroine was in a bar fight? Mm-hmm. Like, these are, yeah, you're right. And I think that there's something, too. What if Adriana's yes. you know, hero had been, had right. like, what if Adriana's heroine had been set up at a table, like, somewhere else in the pavilion and i think that's you know any relation and listen sarah i think about even in our friendship right what if i had never been on twitter yeah (laughs) like how would we know each other like what if i hadn't read iid that week sure and so Mm -hmm. that's the part that i think is really brilliant about any great romance opening Mm -hmm. is we see how like the razor thin margin by which it could have gone another way. Yeah. And instead, now here they are. Yeah. Ah, uh, it's the best. It's the best. It's you know what's best. interesting though is just to like add one 
one, like just to underscore what I said before about multiple po- multiple first first chapters or multiple openings, I think a lot, and this is like really fucks with my brain a lot when I'm writing. I think a lot about how when I, w- if I write today, the words that I write today, the scene that I write today, the chapter that I write today looks different than if I had written it yesterday or if I would write it tomorrow. Yeah. Right? And sure. for me, because I don't outline my books, that means literally the book could be vastly different if I wrote, if I did not write today and I wrote it tomorrow. And that, like, messes <laughs> with me a lot. But the beginnings are that way, right? Like, the beginning is different no matter, like, depending upon when you write it. And I think the cool thing about looking at, you know, at revisions, you know, when you get, when you think about your whole thing, when you look at the whole book in, in you know, in its fullness and you go back to the beginning and you start thinking about revising the beginning, sometimes it's just valuable to look at the first couple of chapters and say, like, well, how many beginnings are there here? Like, where are all the possible beginnings? You could start here. You could start here. Right. You could start here. And maybe you've started in the perfect place. Right. But it's a fun exercise, and also it'll break your brain a little, and that's fun. Yeah, right. I mean, but that's it. I think that, to me, the the awesome opening really is about, like, chemistry, like, but that crackling sense of, uh-oh, some, the hand of fate has come into play in some little magical way here and put these two or these three or whoever on a path where they're going to just have no choice but to run into each other and then they're in each other's orbit and they can't get away. But how quickly they could have been, you know, missed each other. That, I think, is what every good opening feels a little to me like, like magic. Yeah. Just like love. Aw, I love romance (laughs) so much. I love it so much, Sarah. Thanks for listening to us, you all. We are on season five. This is Faded Mates. I'm Sarah. I'm here with my friend, Jen. You can find us at FadedMates.net. You can find us on Twitter at FadedMates, on Instagram at FadedMatesPod. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Eva Moore, Tori Dean, and Lucy LaRue. The best way for you to support us is to support them and their books. And we'll see you all next week for Marion Winterborn. Woo woo! <laughs> oh, wait. Not five fucking minutes. <gasps> Not five fucking minutes. That's what it should have been, Jen. But I haven't read the book. Well, soon. <laughs> soon we'll be ready. All right. Have Bye a great y'all. week, everybody. 